Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you, saints. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Kelton. I also serve as one of the pastors here at Stafford Baptist Church. Please open with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, where we're going to be in verses 18 through 34. Matthew 9, 18 to 34. Well, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes people become stars virtually overnight. In 2009, the Scottish singer Susan Boyle sang as a competitor on Britain's Got Talent. One judge described her performance as, as the biggest surprise he'd seen in his three years judging the show. Headlines after her performance read, Unknown Scottish singleton Susan Boyle became one of the most talked-about people in the world this week after a brief TV appearance. Within days, the video of her performance had 26 million views on YouTube. Celebrities and musicians worldwide praised her talent. Eventually, the video cracked the the top five of the most-watched viral videos of all time. And even though Susan Boyle didn't go on to win the contest, she soon had a record deal, followed by UK's best-selling debut album of all time. She's now released eight successful albums. Her fame spread like wildfire. And it's not just in the halls of of Hollywood or whatever the, the British equivalent is. It was everywhere, on social media, friends telling friends they needed to see this. Well, maybe you didn't see it at the time, but perhaps you can think of another example. A meteoric rise to fame, all on the witness of those who saw. It's something in in human nature. When we see something breathtaking, to tell other people about it. When we finally catch our breath. And you know, that's, that's something like how Christianity, the message of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus spreads. At first and, and still today, not, not through PR firms and marketing campaigns, but through the reports of those who have seen for themselves the beauty of Jesus. Our passage this morning in Matthew is is his report of the miracles of the Messiah, Uh, an ancient viral video, if you will. And these miracles that Matthew reports not only give evidence that Jesus is the promised deliverer from God, but those that witness these miracles give report of what they see so that, that all can hear and know who this Jesus is. As we this morning read this account, it invites us to see Jesus for who he is and to join those who spread this news that that Jesus is the deliverer sent from God. Well, before we read, though, please pray with me once more for God's help in the hearing and proclaiming of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning for revealing yourself to us by your word. Lord, not only sending your Son, God incarnate, 
to be the perfect image of the invisible God, but for leaving report of that, that those who saw and believed give us their witness this morning that Jesus is the deliverer sent from God. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of faith as we hear that we would believe. And in believing, we would spread this news to all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's read Matthew 9, starting in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowds making commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The word of the Lord. Well, these stories are the last in a series of, of miracles, of healings that Matthew will record in his account of the life of Jesus. Certainly, Matthew will record more healings, but, but not like what he's done here in chapters 8 and 9, a, a litany of healing miracles. So far, from the beginning of chapter 8, we've had the cleansing of a leopard, the healing of a paralytic A fever gone at a touch. Two demon-possessed men delivered. Another paralytic able now to walk. A dead girl raised. A bleeding woman restored. Two blind men given sight. And now a mute man able to talk. The point of this section, chapters 8 and 9, has been to show Jesus' authority over sickness, over self, over storms, over spirits and, and sin. He is upending expectations as he brings in the new of his kingdom. Along with everything that has come before our text this morning is is showing us that Jesus is the long-expected deliverer sent from God. What he is doing in these chapters is fulfilling what Scripture has said that the Messiah will do. And as the crowds see this evidence before them, they, they spread this news. 
that Jesus is the promised deliverer from God. Well, that's, that's our big idea this morning. In, in a sentence, what does this text demand of us? That we too spread the news that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. Spread the news that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. We're going to have three stops on our tour of this passage this morning. First, we'll see how these miracles give proof that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. Second, we'll look at how the miracles make Jesus popular. And third, how with some Jesus is opposed. So first, Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. Second, Jesus is popular. And third, Jesus is opposed. Let's get to our, our first point. Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. As we read through, I'm sure that you saw that we had, had three different scenes with four healings in these three scenes. The, the first scene there in 18 starts right at the dinner, right from the scene before as he was speaking to the Pharisees and, and then the disciples of John at, at dinner with the tax collectors and sinners. In the middle of this meal, as Jesus speaks, this ruler comes in. The ruler would have been a, a leader in the local synagogue. As he comes to Jesus, he takes a posture of maybe respect or despair on his knees. And he asks Jesus to to leave the meal and, and come at once. His daughter is dead. All all death is painful, the the cause of grief. But the the death of a child seems to be the, the ultimate tragedy. There is something particularly evil about it. One of my acquaintances from from college lost his two-year-old son suddenly, recently, with no medical explanation. The the grief is unfathomable. And and I I tell you that, brothers and sisters, to to help us get into the heart of this man kneeling at at Jesus' feet to get into the the heart-rending pain that he is feeling before Jesus. In the midst of his pain, he goes to the only place he knows to find help. If he would only lay a hand on his daughter, she would live. So Jesus rises from his meal, in verse 19, and, and goes with him. There in in verses 20 through 22, we have another healing tucked into the scene. As Jesus goes, a woman finds him and and touches his clothing. Matthew says there in in verse 20 that this woman has been suffering from a discharge for 12 years. It's likely some kind of, of uterine bleeding which would have made her unclean unable to participate in society and and at the temple. Not to mention it would likely have left her anemic and and weak with all that bleeding. I wonder, do you remember what you were doing 12 years ago? In in 2009, I was, was graduating college. Can you imagine having constant internal bleeding that whole time? 
with doctors unable to help. No end in sight. This woman, though different from the father losing his daughter, is is desperate as well. She believes that by touching not even Jesus himself, but, but just his clothes, she can be made well. She too goes to the only place where she knows to find help. So without even speaking to Jesus, she comes up behind him and and touches his his garment. And instantly, verse 22 says, instantly the woman was made well. But but Jesus isn't content to, to let her be healed and for her to be on her way without interaction. So he pauses in his journey and, and turns to her to encourage her. Take heart, he says daughter. Your faith has made you well. Just like with the paralytic at the start of this chapter, Jesus' healing and the forgiveness of sins is is linked to faith. We'll see that again with the two blind men in in just a moment. So it's appropriate for us to to reiterate here that that faith for the Christian is, is not some nebulous aura that the spiritual have. No, it's a reasonable understanding that this man had, that this woman had, of who Jesus is, and therefore unshakable confidence in him because of that. It causes us to draw near to him in life's greatest difficulties. It is reliance on him in love and hope. But Jesus... His disciples, they they don't linger. Jesus continues on to the ruler's house and in verse 23 arrives. Crowds are mourning outside in, in loud outbursts of grief along with professional flute players. But Jesus dismisses the crowd to to work in peace. Look at verse 24. He explains to them that the girl is not dead, but but sleeping. Of course, he doesn't mean this literally, otherwise he wouldn't need to come to help. She really is dead. The crowds laugh because they think that death is irreversible. Jesus' point, though, is that he knows that the girl's death is not permanent. Like in sleep, she will wake up. Her, Her death is real but not final. Well, with the crowd outside in verse 25, Jesus lifts the girl by the hand and, and she lives just like that. Perhaps the, the greatest display of Jesus' power, bringing back the dead to life, not with a defibrillator, but simply by a touch of his hand. Can you imagine the joy of that father with his daughter back again? Of of course, what happens in this story is is only the resuscitation of someone who will later die. It is a postponement of death. But but for us, for Christians reading this today, in a much deeper sense, we know that, that by his resurrection from the dead... Jesus has overcome the finality of of death itself. All those who who die in Christ 
Paul can describe as as asleep, like this girl. Because though death is real for the Christian, it is not final. And sisters in particular, notice Jesus' care for women displayed here. Both the, the bleeding woman and the dead girl would have been considered ceremonially unclean. That means a respected Jewish teacher would, would not touch them. But Jesus does not recoil in disgust. He draws near in love. In healing the bleeding woman, he, he heals something particularly unique to women. Yes, Jesus was incarnate as male. He is masculinity as God intended. But sisters, you can trust him in the midst of even pain your brothers cannot understand. Because Jesus is a tender deliverer to all. Well, the the next episode happens, it seems, as Jesus returns from the ruler's house. There in verse 27, as he passed on from there, two blind men find him. They call out to him, calling him son of David. If you remember all the way back from Matthew 1.1, the book begins calling Jesus the, the son of David. It's a royal title, calling him king. It's also a, a messianic title, a, a title of hope, of the promised deliverer in the line of David to rule forever. When they cry out to this son of David for mercy, what Jesus has previously taught that that God requires mercy and not sacrifice, kindness and, and empathy to those in need. So when they get back to the house in verse 28, they come in to Jesus He might be back at his own house in Capernaum or or the house that he was having dinner at. And he he asked them about their belief. Do you believe I am able to do this? And the blind men respond with, with a clear profession of faith. Yes. Yes, Lord. And so, again, healing here is is linked to faith. And as they believe, it is done. At Jesus' touch, again, they have their sight restored instantly. But Jesus has no rest. The next healing happens in in rapid succession right after. As the, the blind men leave the house, a man unable to speak is brought in, in verse 32. The the shortest of the three scenes reports that that this man cannot speak because he's oppressed by a demon. So in verse 33, the demon is cast out, the mute man speaks, and that's it. Healed by the power of the Messiah. Well, there are some details in these stories that we need to explore more later. But but first, what does this all say about Jesus? Who who is Jesus? Well, I think without coming out and saying it directly, Matthew is telling us that that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. We read earlier in our service from Isaiah 35. 
In it, the the prophet is pointing to a promised future, a, a future that will be like the desert blooming with spring flowers. If you remember, as we read it in in verse 4 of that chapter, it predicts that God will come and save us. And what will mark that time in verses 5 and 6? Well, it's things like the blind seeing, the lame leaping, the mute speaking. Isaiah is predicting the coming of the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed, The Messiah is the coming deliverer and and savior to rescue his people and and usher in a time of of prosperity and blessing. Jesus' title, Christ, is is the Greek translation of Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. When Jesus shows up on the scene performing miracles like the ones Matthew is recording for us in in chapters 8 and 9, giving sight to the blind, making the lame walk, the, the mute talk, Matthew's point is that we're supposed to see them for more than just the miracles of a prophet. These are the deeds of the promised deliverer sent from God, the the Messiah. God himself come to save us and bring us into the age of prosperity. So these signs, brothers and sisters, are like big neon signs, each flashing and and pointing to this man, Jesus. He is the one. He's the one you've been waiting for. You see, for, for hundreds of years, God has been preparing for his own son to come through the promises, the, the patterns, the, the people of the Old Testament. God has always been preparing for a final deliverer to come, to do what no deliverer before him could do. Isaiah 35 and and these healings are just a small part of the tapestry of promise and fulfillment in God's work. And the Messiah's ability here to to give physical healing and wholeness is, is just part of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He can do the same for us, not just physically, but also spiritually. Brothers and sisters, you you and I might not be physically blind. We might not yet be dead. But in our sin, we are spiritually without life or sight. Ephesians 2, 1 says that, that you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That in our sin we are are dead and blind. And this means that that spiritually we are completely unable, unable to, to please God, unable to change, unable to save ourselves. God then has has sent a deliverer, not primarily to deliver us from sickness, but but from a more fundamental problem, our sin. The promised Messiah who, who brings these healings is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
This Jesus died in our place for our sins, suffering on the cross what we deserve from God, so that now, with the same kind of faith that we see throughout these healings, we can receive from Christ new spiritual life and sight and the hope of of a perfect spiritual and physical well-being when he returns to wake us from the sleep of our death. You know, I've, I've often heard it said that, that people would believe in Jesus if they just had some, some proof, some concrete evidence that it's all true. Well, if, if that's you this morning, please understand what, what Matthew is doing here in this story. He is going to, to great lengths to provide eyewitness testimony, proof that Jesus is who he says he is. But still... Still, it is, is it by faith that we are justified. Abundant proof cannot replace faith. So I would encourage you to, to listen to the evidence, to believe that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. But we have more to deal with in these verses. Not only do they show us that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. But, but Matthew, in these verses, reports how the people respond to this evidence. So our, our second point, Jesus' miracles make him popular. Jesus is popular. I don't know if you noticed as we read, but, but one thing that's unique and repeated in these three scenes is, is how they conclude Look again at the conclusion of the first in verse 26. It reads, And the report of this went through all that district. Despite him putting the crowds out, report of Jesus rising, raising this, this girl from the dead, went through all the district. It's easy for us to imagine. Maybe the father running out to tell his family in the crowds. Or, or even if not, the, the crowds could put two and two together This girl who was dead is now alive. And when they hear this news, they do not keep it to themselves. It's like the news of of Susan Boyle's performance spreading like wildfire. Something breathtaking has happened, and everyone needs to know. We see the same thing happen in in the second scene, in, in verse 31. It says they went away and spread his fame through all that district. You know, Jesus intentionally in this scene went inside in in private before healing the blind men. He even strictly warns them to tell no one. But they don't listen. It says clearly in verse 31, who is responsible? They, the, the blind men, go and spread his fame in the district. Jesus is getting tremendously well-known and well-received there. It reaches its climax in the third scene, in in verse 33. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. I, I think we should read verse 33 not just as an evaluation of this one exorcism, But but the whole range of Jesus' miracles here in in chapter 8 and 9. Others 
might perform the occasional exorcism. But this man, this man's ministry of deliverance is unlike anything they had ever seen in Israel. So the crowds marvel. What we see in these three verses is Jesus' meteoric rise in popularity spread by word-of-mouth reports throughout the district. It's kind of like Tesla's business model. You know, those makers of electric cars. They have no ad agency, no chief marketing officer, not even a dealer network where you can go buy the cars. But they still can't make cars fast enough. All of this is happening because of the report of satisfied customers. Well, Jesus doesn't need marketing help either. His work speaks for itself. All who see what he is doing can't help but but telling everyone about them, even when he forbids it. You, You might be wondering, though, why? Why does he forbid it? Why was Jesus so private? Why did he work here to conceal himself? Well, it might just be practical. We often see in the Gospels how the crowds made ministry difficult for Jesus, demanding things from him. But I think more fundamentally, it's because his time has not yet come. He hides his miracles. He he teaches in parables rather than plainly because it is only after his death and resurrection, that who he is will be fully revealed. Until then, who he is will be largely misunderstood, even by his disciples. But here is an important lesson for us, brothers and sisters. The time for careful concealment of the identity of the Messiah is long gone. Jesus does not heal us and forbid us from telling anyone about us. No, no, far from it. In fact, at the end of his ministry, his command for his disciples was to go far beyond just that district, to spread the report of his work in every, every nation, among all peoples. So so you and, and I who have experienced the mercy of Christ in the gospel for ourselves, are now entrusted with this message of reconciliation, of deliverance, as ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to the world through us, not some chief marketing officer. Just like the the real historical people in, in these stories, your testimony of what God has done for you personally should spread like wildfire. It's not the kind of news that you keep to yourself. You were dead. And he made you alive. You were blind. And he gave you sight. He came. He loved. He healed. Brothers and sisters, as as amazing as it was, what he did for this father and this woman. Think, think again how, how desperate that father was with a dead daughter. How desperate the bleeding woman was 
And imagine the reversal. As amazing, as amazing as that was, what he has done for you is far, far greater. We were destined for eternal wrath, for condemnation because of our love of our sin. All of us spurned God's good law. We gave the worship that God deserves to ourselves and to empty idols. To use the language of Titus 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. As much as the men and women of Matthew 8 and 9 have wonderful stories to spread the news that Jesus is the promised deliverer, Friends, we have have so many more. We all have a story of God's grace interrupting our sin on our pathway to hell. Even if you came to faith at at a young age with, with very little drama, it was a miraculous deliverance. And those miracles continue to work in your life today. So, brothers and sisters, this morning as we read these accounts, let me encourage you to remember your testimony as well. Let me suggest that the next time you get together with a member of this church, to ask them about how Jesus saved them. What what God continues to do in their life through these miracles. And once they share their story, you do the same. Share yours. And I'd encourage you to do that for for two reasons. First, to encourage one another. Stories of of Jesus' deliverance in our lives are are wonderful aids to our love and trust in our Deliverer. As we see the, the myriad ways that He works in our lives. But but second, share your testimony to practice sharing it with others. We live in an age that, that loves authentic stories. Telling your, your neighbors, your coworkers, your, your friends as you have opportunity about how Jesus delivered you is a powerful aid in your evangelism. Mark Dever in his book, The Gospel in Personal Evangelism, tells the, the story of a man at an outreach event with his, his non-Christian friend. The event was was full of Christians giving testimony, stories like these about their Christian life. Well, at one point, the the non-Christian friend leaned to the man and said, you know, I don't believe any of this. Well, the man responded, yeah, I, I know, but wouldn't you like to? As recounted with, with that remark, tears welled up in the woman's eyes, her, her head told her no, but her heart 
yearned to hear. What we see illustrated there are that the testimonies, these stories are, are powerful. But, but telling people what Jesus did for you is not the end. Faithful evangelism means moving from your story, what Jesus did for you, to Jesus' story, to the facts of his, his life, death, and resurrection, why he came, what he accomplished on the cross, and how all of this applies to your non-believing friend. So as you have opportunity to share your testimony, include the specifics of of how you came to understand the gospel and how that understanding was the key to you coming to Jesus. As you use your testimony to to spread the news that that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God, continue to explain that God delivers through the cross And invite your non-believing friends to to receive that same deliverance by faith. Because, brothers and sisters, it's it's not within our power to see anyone converted. But it is our, our duty to share what God has done for us in His Son. Ultimately, who is saved by God is in His power alone. And ultimately, some people will reject Jesus. We see that in our chilling conclusion to our passage. In our brief third point, Jesus is opposed. Jesus is opposed. If if verse 33 is the climax of these chapters of the crowds marveling at the evidence that Jesus is the deliverer sent from God, well, the next verse 34 is the climax of the Pharisees' assessment of Jesus' miracle in unbelief. These Pharisees have been around these few chapters. Remember, they were mentioned by name at the dinner with the tax collectors and sinners. But I think verse 34 is implying that they they saw a lot more of what was going on. And as they assess the evidence, far from concluding that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God, they, they accuse him of the very opposite. Let me read that verse again. The Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. You see, they don't, they don't deny his power, right? They can't. It's demonstrable fact. They've they've seen it. So what they do instead is doubt the source of his power. Instead of being from God, they say that he has power from Satan, the prince of demons. And as Matthew records this, he is is highlighting the point that as Jesus' popularity skyrocketed, so is his opposition. The Pharisees have gone from questioning his messianic mission at the dinner now to outright accusations that this teacher is from the devil. How how wicked. These spiritual leaders calling God the devil. The, the sad irony is that by their accusation, the Pharisees prove that, that Satan has blinded them from seeing the glory of Christ. 
It says, Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8, you are of your father, the devil. In in this opposition to Jesus here in verse 34, we we begin to see that, that Jesus came to suffer. He came to be the suffering servant. And part of that suffering was to be maligned and hated in his life. If, if you've been around Christianity long enough, this is like calling water wet. It's, it's obvious. I mean, the, the most popular icon of Christianity is a Roman torture device, the cross. Right? We get this. But this was unimaginable to Jews. All the proof you need is to see how the disciples com- constantly misunderstood Jesus when he told them that he was going to die. You know, the, the Jews saw, like in, in Isaiah 35, that the Messiah would bring healing and, and prosperity. It would be like a desert blooming with spring flowers. They knew that he would be king like David, prophet like Moses, that he'd be priest like Aaron, but, but even better than all those. What they missed, though, is the fact that this time of prosperity would also mean suffering. They wanted a a conquering hero, but God promised a suffering servant. So in verse 34, when when Jesus is opposed, it's, it's much more than the wicked thoughts of blind Pharisees. It's God's plan. Isaiah 53 speaking of the the same man as Isaiah 35, says in verse 3 that this man would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In in fact, the the very first promise of the Messiah in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, promises that as he crushes the head of Satan, that his heel will be bruised everywhere. The Bible predicts that the coming Messiah will be a suffering Messiah. So I I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that that we shouldn't be surprised when we see in verse 34 that that Jesus is opposed. Opposed by the very ones that should be welcoming him. The Bible tells us this. But even though we shouldn't be surprised, let's, let's take a moment to be surprised anyway. Let's be surprised that God would use suffering of all things, suffering to accomplish his purpose. The the life of the deliverer sent from God ended with him hanging on a cross where he was mocked. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. He could save others, but he can't save himself. Christ's campaign of conquering sickness and sin ended ended with him being crucified in weakness. The one who had the power to raise the dead now dying, saving others. He could not save himself. The crowds thought that he would ride into Jerusalem and restore Israel to its former glory. But here in Jerusalem, he is rather suffering like a criminal. 
the lowest of the low. But friends, the good news is that that very weakness was used by God to bring deliverance from sin and death. Stafford Baptist, that the promised deliverer sent from God was also promised to suffer in opposition and and much more. What we find here in verse 34 should, should sadden us, but not shrinken, not shrink our confidence in God's power. Our God uses suffering and weakness to accomplish His very good purposes. Suffering was not meaningless in Jesus' life, nor is it meaningless in yours. So, brother, sister, what is it that you suffer? In illness? In loss? In longing? In opposition. Our suffering isn't the stuff of fulfilled prophecy, but it certainly is all according to God's sovereign purpose and for your good. All things, Romans 8.28 says, even suffering, all things work together for good. Paul says elsewhere that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So this morning, brothers and sisters, I, I invite you to consider Jesus, our promised deliverer, who too endured through suffering because God would use it to accomplish salvation. What is our confidence in the midst of suffering? Well, it's this, that Jesus holds all of our days in his hands, that that no suffering comes apart from his command, and that he will keep us to the end. So with grace sufficient for weakness, we go and spread the news that Jesus is the promised deliverer sent from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your name for being faithful to your promise to send a deliverer. Lord, a deliverer to do more than than deliver from sickness and from death. But Lord, to deliver us from our sins and its consequences. To rescue us from spiritual death and blindness. To rescue us from what our sins deserve, eternal condemnation because of your good justice. Father, we pray that that as our Savior was opposed, as he endured in suffering, that we too would endure in confidence in the midst of our suffering. And Lord, that, that the good news of what you have done in our life and promised to do in all those who would repent and believe would, would motivate us to spread this news. It's the glory of Christ that we pray this. Amen.